The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hi, this is Vicky with the Bloomberg Crypto Podcast team. We've been taking a break this week to recharge our batteries for the new year, and we'll be back tomorrow with some fresh episodes for you. But today, we're re-upping the last in our series of our team favorites. And this one is definitely in my top 10. It's a fascinating interview with Bloomberg reporters Ellen Milligan and David Voriakos. They walk us through how police and FBI agents have had to rethink how to recover stolen goods when they're dealing with digital assets. This sort of turns into a Keystone Capers-type adventure, with agents trying to track down digital keys after a raid or a seizure, all to gain access to stolen crypto. All of us here on the Bloomberg Crypto team hope you had a great end to 2022, and we look forward to what the new year will bring. Hope you enjoyed this one. Picture this. You're the FBI, trying to track down the digital keys that will give you access to illicit or stolen crypto. You're rifling through books, papers stuffed in suitcases, you're tearing open gum wrappers. It's like something out of a movie. But in the world of crypto, these odd nooks and crannies have become totally normal places for law enforcement to look for digital passwords. In 2021 alone, cops in the US and the UK seized billions of dollars in crypto assets from various different criminal busts. With so much money on the line, enforcement agencies around the world have had to learn, and learn quickly, how to spot these digital assets and seize them from accused criminals. Today, I'm joined by Bloomberg reporters Ellen Milligan. They are spending all this taxpayer money to train these police officers in crypto, and then they're losing them. And David Voriakos. While the crypto was in the possession of the U.S. government, stole it from right under their noses. To discuss how the seizures of digital assets are transforming policing policies and protocols around the world. Ellen, David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. We're going to talk about something kind of weird, which is how do police officers seize imaginary money? And I don't just mean imaginary in the sense of contested valuation. I mean imaginary as in not cash, not physical, not things that you can sort of wrap your head around. You know, people are breaking down a door and they're like, freeze, and we're going to take all your stuff. You have been writing about what happens when cops seize crypto. Tell us more about what that's like. Well, police um, traditionally have seized uh, physical items like jewelry, cash, cars, boats, planes. And with crypto, they have to know that it's there and they have to be educated enough about the process to understand that it has value and there are are unusual ways to access it. And so that's what we wrote about, that police around the world are educating themselves on what crypto is and how to access it. Then once they get it, how they store it and how they sell it. And Ellen, what does that look like? Well, really, there's a few different elements to this. Like David said, there's the seizing of the crypto and discovering it, which is easier said than done (laughs) because often 
there's not a physical element to crypto. Sometimes there is like a kind of hardware device that crypto wallet is kept on or something like that. But often these are digital assets Mm -hmm. and to discover them and then to seize them, you need a uh, seed phrase that accesses the crypto wallet. So even if you're holding a keep key device, for example, police won't know how much Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency is held on there until they can access it using this kind of password. And then they're storing it once they've seized it. How do they keep this asset safe often for years while you go through a criminal trial and then a forfeiture order. Um, There's real security issues with hacks, for example, Mm -hmm. but also there's, you know, in some cases there have been corrupt police officers who have taken it for themselves. Um, And then the last element is how you release that that cryptocurrency um if you give it back to victims or what value you give it back to victims if the state keeps it these are the um questions that um law enforcement has been grappling with and what david and i really discovered is there's no standardized procedure of way that people do this every as in any of the parts like each one is idiosyncratic exactly and every different law agency around the world and different law agencies within the same countries do it differently. And the police, like the rest of the world, when it comes to crypto, have had to learn this as they go along. And inevitably, mistakes have been made along the way, and they're still grappling with this. So you mentioned kind of three elements, each of which sounds hilariously complicated. So let's let's take one of each one in turn. First of all is the the identification, right? The like, Something suspicious is happening. We think that's a suspicious thing is in crypto. We've figured out that that exists. What are the steps involved in, okay, we think that this is suspicious. We have, you know, good cause. We have all the paperwork, et cetera, that's required. How do they even get those passwords in the first place? Well, in identifying the suspicious crypto, they can see the movement of crypto on the blockchain. That is a public um, ledger. ledger that they can see and they can... What they must first do is trace it to criminal activity. Uh, And once they've traced it to criminal activity, they can then get a court order to seize wallets that are associated with, um, say, stolen crypto. At that point, they they cannot actually access those wallets without the seed recovery phrases, and they can come in different ways. They may be written on slips of paper. They may get it from um, insiders who are familiar with it. But if they do not have those seed recovery phrases, they can't, the police cannot access the crypto. So they can't, say, compel an exchange to hand that crypto over to them? There's a case um, that's pending in federal court in Washington in which um, a guy named uh, Gary Harmon from Akron, Ohio, um, is alleged to have stolen crypto 
right from under the noses of the Internal Revenue Service, which had seized crypto from Gary's brother, Larry Harmon, who pleaded guilty um, to charges associated with running a, a crypto mixer and helping to obscure the identity of crypto. And the federal government alleges that Gary Harmon, while the crypto was in the possession of the U.S. government, stole it from right under their noses. and has a value of many millions of dollars. He's scheduled to go to trial early next year, but there have been negotiations that have been spelled out in court papers in which um, the federal government just wants the seed recovery phrase so they can have the crypto. And Gary Harmon's uh, lawyers say that's essentially tantamount to him admitting he committed the crime. Interesting. So all of the big parts of jurisprudence that people might be familiar with now being applied to the slightly more chaotic entities involved in crypto. That sounds like fun. Ellen, you mentioned that that the second part of this complex thing around storage, this seems to be part of the problem that David is describing. If if another entity can just be like, nope, that's mine and take it <laughs> once that crypto has been seized by the government or by the police, like what's going on there? What are those fail safes? Exactly. And um, a lot of these cases have come out of like the 2017, 2018 time where there was um, kind of the last big spike in crypto and then crash before before 2021's uh, spike. Um, and a lot of those cases came out of hacks. And that just shows you even if the police are holding it um, and storing this crypto in their own internal system or outsource system, there's still a danger that that could be hacked. And when you've got cases like the Bitfinex case that, that David spoke about, I mean, the whole world knows how much... Um, that this law enforcement agency has seized and and it becomes very vulnerable, uh, vulnerable because of that. I spoke to a small police force in, in southern England for this story. They stumbled across crypto um, for the first time accidentally, really, in 2017. So this was a kidnapping case um, where a guy was kidnapped. Turned out his house was a cannabis farm. So they did some digging around and they found this keep key device, which had a notepad um, attached to it uh, with two seed phrases. And it had 900 uh, grand in Bitcoin, I think, um, on it. And so what police did is that there was no precedent for this. They had no idea what to do. Most of them didn't really know what crypto was. They bought their own keep key device and they transferred um, the Bitcoin from his wallet to their wallet, mm -hmm. their crypto wallet. And then they kept this keep key device and the seed phrases in a safe and only two like Like, hang on, like a physical safe. <laughs> a physical safe in the police station. And only two policemen had access to the to the safe. And that's because in, in the Silk Road case that David referred to, um, there, two, two police officers uh, ran off in that case in the US with uh, some of the money that they they were storing. Um, and so there was a, you know, the, the police were very worried about corrupt, corrupt police officers, but also about losing, losing the money. So that's how they did it. And then um, they eventually sold it to a trusted exchange. Now, they don't do that anymore, not surprisingly, <laughs> because it is very dangerous to keep such enormous millions of dollars of in crypto in, in, yeah. in, in a mini like <laughs> small police station in southern <laughs> England it's ridiculous now 
Um, but these are the kinds of ways that they would do it as they were learning on the job. And I mean, now uh, what they do and what most UK law enforcement agencies do, which is they have a um, they outsource it to a company called Kamanu, which is backed by uh, Ledger and and others. And it's they've got their own secure high tech like system of doing. Oh, so they say. Because, you know, I guess time will tell. Time will tell. We'll be right back with more from Bloomberg reporters David Voriakos and Ellen Milligan on how law enforcement is keeping up with this new digital dimension of financial crime. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I want to push on something that you're saying here about you know, they tried some stuff. <laughs> the stuff didn't necessarily work. Now they may be getting better at it. How are they getting better? Like, where are they finding people? You've mentioned outsourcing. But they obviously need police officers who are tr- themselves trained in knowing what to do. What has that process been like? So in the UK, um, the police lobbied the government, the Home Office, um, for funding to train about 250 officers around the country in um, how to investigate, seize, and realize the value of these assets. They were dubbed crypto tactical advisors. No. Yes. (laughs) And I think one or two from every force around the country was trained in this. And that really helped them. And then they did a public procurement process um, to outsource this. And I know that that's been done in the US less successfully, um, which David can tell you about. But actually, (laughs) the trouble that they're having now is... Um, they've lost a number of these crypto tactical advisors to Coinbase, chain analysts, these firms who can triple their pay. So that's something they're really struggling with is they are spending all this taxpayer money to train these police officers in crypto and then they're losing them to these firms who can pay them far more. So let me just make sure I'm, I'm understanding this. I, a US taxpayer, have nominally contributed to somebody working for Coinbase right now. <laughs> Potentially. Potentially. I, as a UK taxpayer, definitely have. I I would say also in the US, I mean, the FBI and the Internal Revenue Service have some extremely talented investigators, and they have uh, very large databases at their access, which are able to they're able to use to triangulate to figure out who owns a wallet uh, because they can follow the movement of crypto across mm-hmm. the blockchain in ways that people can't do it um, who have only public access. And they also work with uh, firms like Chainalysis, which um, Ellen had mentioned, mm-hmm. um, to help them put together who owns you know, uh, disputed wallets. And uh, I would also say that the government is looking to privatize the storage and sale of seized crypto assets. The Justice Department, uh, through the Marshalls, has had sort of mixed success with that. Marshalls used to auction crypto themselves, and they stopped in 2020. They were trying to hire an outside firm, and the two firms that they had settled on 
both were disqualified because they were too big under the um, the regulations. And so the marshals are doing it themselves, but they're looking for a firm outside to do it for them. And Ellen, this is related to the third part of that complex tree, right, which is the distribution once some sort of judgment has been rendered on, on either the crypto or the alleged criminal involved. Yeah, this is almost the most complicated part because there was no legal precedent for for this. And what a court does when, for example, it finds someone guilty, there's a forfeiture proceeding um, that happens later on. And often this happens years after um And what's a forfeiture proceeding? Um, in the UK, um, you have the Proceeds of Crime Act, and this is a 20-year-old act. And at the end of the case, um, when someone's found guilty and sent to jail, within a year, there's usually a court hearing uh, where a judge will decide the se- what to do with the seized assets, whether the criminal can keep some of them, whether um, they forfeit them. Um, and also how, whether they stay with the state, whether they have to be distributed to victims, for example. The trouble that this police force had in the case I was talking about earlier was this law was 20 years old when crypto didn't exist. Mm. So they had to go to a judge and convince them that this is an asset the most valuable asset in in the case it was they 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 came across cash about 200 grand in cash watches artwork gold but the the crypto was the most valuable asset the other complication and we've seen that even more so is that crypto will be a much different price than it was when they seized it and 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 the good thing that <laughs> police have had up until this year was it ballooned in price. So either the state or victims got quite a good deal out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think what police are now really grappling with is actually that that crypto that they've been storing for so long has actually fallen in price now. Mm-hmm. Quite a lot, what, actually. Quite a lot. And at what point do they sell it? They're confined by the law, but at what point do they convert that? Do they convert it before um, they forfeit it? It's it's really complicated. And it's really those kinds of questions are actually outside the law. And it's about instinct almost. And David, is it similar in the U.S.? In the U.S., um, assets can be forfeited once someone is convicted of a crime. But they're seized before someone is convicted of a crime. So they may sit there for a year or two, three, four years while someone is going through the judicial process. And uh, the government cannot sell those uh, crypto assets until after there's an order from the judge saying it's okay to, um, to liquidate this. I was going to say there's an interesting case in San Francisco where someone stole 69,370 Bitcoin from the Silk Road uh, site. In November of 2020, it was worth a billion dollars. It then went up a great deal more than that, and it's fallen since then. But there's someone referred to only as Individual X who agreed to forfeit it. And so he's not, he or she is not contesting ownership. um, But There are a bunch of other people who are putting claims in saying, well, they had some of the crypto that was in dispute. And um, so the judge in San Francisco is ruling on that dispute and he's hearing uh, 
testimony and reading reports from experts on both sides. Mm -hmm. And in every case so far, he's ruled for the government. And a couple of the people who say that um, some of that crypto is theirs have appealed it. And the uh, so it has to be adjudicated at the the district court level and the appellate court level before they can go ahead and sell all of that crypto, which is very valuable. And it sounds like it's going to take a long time. It has taken uh, almost two years so far. It'd probably take, I would guess, another year or so. But uh, then I assume they're going to go ahead and sell it. Wow. Well, thank you both for joining us on this, frankly, fascinating episode. I really appreciate you both taking the time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ellen, and thank you, David. You can find more of their reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal, on Bloomberg.com, and on Twitter. Ellen is at Ellen A. Milligan, that's M-I-L-L-I-G-A-N, and David is at David Voriakos, that's David, V-O-R-E-A-C-O-S. On the next episode of Bloomberg Crypto, one of the most interesting conversations in crypto right now is all about definitions, and especially the definition of a so-called security. Who better to tackle this than Bloomberg Opinion columnist Matt Levine, a former practicing lawyer and investment banker who has written extensively about securities, securities law, insider trading, all the things that are very much topical right now. You'll also hear highlights from Matt's interview with Sam Bankman-Fried at the recent Bloomberg Crypto Summit in New York. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. Or find us on Twitter, we're at Crypto. The supervising producer of Bloomberg Crypto is Vicky Vergalina. Our senior producer is Janet Babin. Our producer is Sharon Barrero. Our associate producers are Zanab Siddiqui and Moses Andam. Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. We'll be back tomorrow. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.